from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz Group headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, hacking planet Earth's big data, are Boeing's biofuels ready for takeoff, and the art of storytelling from Conservation International. It's Happily Ever After, this week on 350. It's March 4th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm here in Green Biz Studio with senior editor Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Joel. How's it going? Are you recovering yet from Arizona? recovering from green Biz 16 uh, that was called last friday uh we all came back this week and jumped right back into where we're planning our next two or three events uh in hawaii in june in santa Cl- in santa clara california in september our verge conferences and even uh booking people for green biz 17 next year so that didn't last long but it was a great week we've been hearing from lots of people speakers uh, sponsors attendees thanking us i mean we really should be thanking them they're the ones that really came together and and had a, a great week and then we've had a, a real busy week here just people coming through the green biz office yeah i know we've been getting back to the grind reporting and writing and i've seen people uh we had the silicon valley leadership group in net impact who are they're a pretty close neighbor bay area neighbor yeah net impact is the uh, group of uh I started off as students for a responsible business, and when they realized that their members didn't want to leave the organization after they graduated and got into the workforce, it became Net Impact, and it's uh, thousands of, of, of young professionals and, and MBAs and some undergrads you know, looking at responsible business practices and very aligned uh, with, with what we do and who, who we are. And uh, you know, I've known them really since they began over 20 years ago, and they just a, f- a few weeks ago moved across the street from us here at Franco Gala Plaza. So we had a uh, we had ba- basically had them all over for cocktails. It was <laughs> kind of fun, um, but yeah, we're big fans of Net Impact, and um, we're going to I think continue to be working with them in increasing number of ways. Yeah, we actually have some audio I know from uh, a sit down you did with Mike Milkey from the leadership group, the Silicon Valley leadership group. Uh, but let's jump right into the week in review. So coming off of GreenBiz 16 last week, we had a bunch of good interviews that we didn't want to let fall by the wayside. And one of them is an update on a story we've been following for a while now, which is aviation biofuels. Um, Specifically, we had Julie Felger from Boeing. She is the managing director of environmental strategy and integration for them. Um, And she talked about sort of where they are now with biofuels. But Joel, this is an area that's been evolving for years and years and sort of hasn't really hit its stride in the mainstream. Well, it's uh, starting to get some lift off. Uh, We've had, uh, back in 2011, biofuels, which are basically fuels derived from from plant-based, a number of different plants uh, and, and other sources, were approved for commercial use, uh, you know, in 2011, and and a few airlines have been experimenting with it, uh, mostly actually on Boeing 
um, uh, airplanes. Uh, so United uh, Continental did a flight from Houston to uh, Chicago uh, based on algae jet fuel supplied by our friends uh, not too far away from here at Solazyme and, and KLM, SAS, and a number of airlines have, have tried this. Um, and, you know, it has tremendous potential to reduce uh, greenhouse gases of, of commercial aviation, which are significant. They uh, represent about 2% of global greenhouse gas emissions right now, but that's projected to climb to 3% by 2050 as commercial aviation continues. So, you know, this has been one of the holy grails. How do we address this? And, and um, Julie had a pretty good story to tell. Can't reinvent the wheel. I mean, aviation is a very complex global industry. You need to make sure that you're meeting extremely rigorous safety standards. It would cost a ton of money to yeah. have to go in and try to refit airports around the world. And there you lose your incentive. So our business model at the beginning had to include the fact that it would be a drop-in fuel. We actually see biofuels, sustainable aviation biofuels, as um, really a key linchpin to having a drastic reduction in aviation's emissions over time. And I understand that with the volatility of oil prices being high and low and what have you, and right now they're quite low, people are saying, well, why would you even focus on a new fuel source? From our customers' perspectives, if I speak to any of them, they'll tell me, and we know it from our own economic research, that you can never count on low fuel prices, by the way. The one thing that you can count on in the oil market is the volatility <laughs> of the right. oil market. So having an alternative and diversifying your fuel resources right. is smart business sense in the long run. On top of that, obviously you get this 50 to 80% emissions reduction gain over the life cycle of the sustainable alternative biofuel. So one of our major goals has been to actually ensure that we have a regional approach because what you don't want to do is have fuels being pulled from one country to another country right. because then you've got carbon emissions associated right. with right. moving the fuel. Yeah. So we're looking at multiple different feedstocks around the world from in the UAE we're looking at saltwater tolerant plants called halophytes that kind of look like tumbleweed that grow in the mm. desert that you can take the oils from, convert to biofuel. In places like China, we always try to add in the socioeconomic aspect as well. So they have an issue with gutter oil, which mm -hmm. is used cooking oil, which is literally poured into the gutters in China. You can take that, you can convert that to biofuel. There's also things like ag waste um, that we're looking at in China in particular to help them with some of the pollution problems that they have. In the United States, we're looking at used cooking oils to make things like green diesel. And we're right now trying to move green diesel through the fuels approval process to be allowed to be used in airplanes. So really, it's very regionally diverse. Brazil, sugarcane to help with farmer um, uh, security and food security issues. But we take all of those things into account when we're looking at what we would use as feedstocks. One interesting side note, and this goes to her point that these need to be produced locally, but it's still how you produce biofuels can make a big difference. There was a life cycle assessment done, I think in 2010, uh, by the Yale School of Forestry. They looked at Jatropa, which is one of those fast-growing plants that is uh, being used as, as a potential biofuels resource. And they found that it could, using Jatropa, could reduce greenhouse gas emissions by a whopping 85% if you use former, what they call agro-pastoral land is used, in other words, land that's currently being used for agriculture. But if you cut down natural woodland to convert it to growing jatropha, you'd increase 
greenhouse gas gas emissions by up to 60%. So from an 85% reduction to a 60% increase, that's a pretty big swing. Mm-hmm. And Julie also mentioned a couple of other important moving parts here. Uh, aviation was not a, a big formal part of the Paris Climate Agreement, but she said they are watching very closely, talk about carbon taxes and other things that could sort of force the issue of biofuels to, to move faster and be pushed into broader adoption. Uh, but when it comes to sort of uh, trendy areas in sustainability. Another one that our senior writer Barbara Grady looked at this week was this whole issue of zero waste, which isn't necessarily as straightforward as it might sound. No, I mean, (laughs) the definition of zero can be pretty uh, loose and all over the place. You know, uh, there are a number of organizations uh, or companies that define zero waste as being uh, up to 90% landfill diversion or up to 10% uh, waste to energy, basically incinerating trash uh, to create energy. Um, sometimes it's 95%. There are groups uh, like the Zero Waste Business Alliance that say, no, no, it has to be 100%. Zero is zero, damn it. Uh, <laughs> and and, and there, we really don't have a definition. There's also zero waste isn't the only term. There's landfill-free mm-hmm. and waste-free and uh, zero landfill and all kinds of things. Yeah, one of the big companies that came out just in the last couple of weeks to declare that they had hit that milestone uh, 100% landfill-free was the beer giant Miller Coors. Um, but like you said, they're, they're saying we are almost to 100%, but we also do some waste energy. Um, but that's, that's still to say they've made a huge reduction in like, they're, they're looking at ways to obviously recycle the materials that are used in their brewing operations, plastics, metals, all of that. But then you have to get creative with materials like spent hops, which they can use for pet food and things like that. Yeah, I'll drink to that. But I think the point here is that some of these definitions, you know, get in the way of having the, uh, you know, classic uh, perfect be the enemy of the good. I mean, if you're, you know, diverting 90, 95% of waste, I mean, that's a beautiful thing. And particularly if you're keeping 100% of it out of landfills and you're burning a little bit of it. I mean, I'm not saying what the definition should be, but in some ways we're getting a little bit caught up in 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 being too precise on some of this. Um, but I do think it's important that we understand it. And that's what Barbara's piece uh, tried to do. It's one of our Green Biz 101 uh, pieces that looks at uh, you know some of the terms that exec- uh, sustainability professionals and executives need to know and sort of digs into it a little bit beyond what we all think we know about it. Mm-hmm. And at its heart, I think zero waste really does allude to the bigger focus that's being placed on supply chain sustainability, which was the focus of another piece that our other senior writer, Heather Clancy, took on this week. She specifically was looking at the evolution of a group called the Sustainable Purchasing Leadership Council, known to most people as the SPLC, um, which has been around for about three years, but really focuses on sort of gathering the the knowledge from this sort of growing network of corporate procurement professionals that are interested in the environmental impacts of their value chain. Little known fact, uh, GreenBiz, uh, we actually helped launch SPLC huh. uh, at a webcast that I hosted. Uh, actually, it was a video cast that I hosted live uh, out at American University in Washington, D.C. a few years ago. Um, with Jason Pearson and a number of others, uh, uh, Jason Pearson, who's the executive director of SPLC, and Yelma Siddiqui from Office Depot, and, and some others, um, really tried, tried to help give that a push. And the idea here is that uh, you know buying green 
is uh, sort of one, another one of those mantras that everyone claims. But how you do it, uh, it turns out to be kind of tricky. And how you do it well, there's just a lot of uh, good insights that a lot of companies have have had. And so they want to elevate uh, the profession of, of green procurement so that uh, and figure out, first of all, help understand that it's not necessarily more expensive. It's not necessarily worse because a lot of procurement people are kind of, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. In other words, I've never been no one's ever told me, you know, never. No one's ever complained about my buying this product in a certain way. So why should I change now? And so, in particularly a risky, greener one. And so, there's enough examples of how that works and and how to push that through the bureaucracy. Then I, I love that's what SPLC is all about, and I think it's really much needed. Mm-hmm. So they're specifically looking. Uh, over the next 12 months to start sharing more practical insights with their members, which are now about 150 companies, hospitals, and government agencies. But they're looking at things like uh, best practices on buying chemically intensive products or construction materials and things like buying energy. Obviously, we talk a lot about procurement of renewables, and that's something that companies are looking for guidance on. Uh, But to that end, one person that knows a lot about how the whole supply chain sustainability space has evolved is Sheila Benini. Sheila is the CEO of the Sustainability Consortium, and what they do is sort of go industry by industry to identify sustainability hotspots. You have to address your supply chain because most of your impact is going to be in the supply chain. The issue is getting more companies to take on that accountability and responsibility, mm. but it's daunting. Right. So if you are, um, especially if you're a big retailer, you have thousands of products in your store and every product has its own complicated supply chain and every product throughout its life cycle has a whole set of complicated uh, sustainability issues. So how do you begin to get your arms around all of that? For business to take action, we sometimes have to step back and say, what are the few key priorities and what do you do about it? So actually we've seen more progress around some of the social hmm. uh, indicators, but in part because it's, it's very compliance oriented and it's also very visible when something like that happens. Where we see um, opportunity for more progress. Um, Some of the environmental areas, and particularly when you try to get more quantitative about it, actually, that's very, very difficult for suppliers. So where we'd like to drive more focus is really looking sector by sector and saying, what are the hotspots or the challenges and, and where do we need to address them? We touch briefly on apparel. And when you look at apparel, you look at its whole life cycle, you do see that they're doing a lot of things in the social area, but not in an environmental, not mm-hmm. to, the, to the same level that they're doing on social. And also a lot of the activity in the um, raw materials and the end of life needs to have work. And so you see that over the, you know, all over the place. Supply chains were also actually at the heart of one of our 10 trends identified in the State of Green Business 2016 report that we put out uh, earlier this month, or last month now, February, which you can get on our website, greenbiz.com. And just a side note, uh, all of the people that we're referencing that were speaking at GreenBiz 16 will have video of their talks uh, available for free on our website. Just check out greenbiz.com in the coming weeks. Once upon a time, we talked about storytelling. Actually, we talked a lot about storytelling just last week at GreenBiz16. We had a whole slew of sessions 
uh, looking at uh, how companies are talking about sustainability. And uh, Elsa Wenzel, our managing editor, um, is here, uh, and she wrote a great story this week about that. Hey, Elsa. Hi, how's it going? Going great. Um, so and what I loved about the story also is that you tied together a whole bunch of different sessions. We had um, uh, Walmart and the Environmental Defense Fund talking about how they work together and some of the communications challenges there. We had uh, this uh, uh, Solitaire Townsend, uh, uh, this master of, of storytelling and marketing from the UK talking about uh, you know how just all, all sorts of parts of that but we loved how they took misshapen produce from the dumpster and how a French supermarket branded that and made it kind of sexy um, there we had uh, the uh, slam poets talking about uh, sustainability and, and and on and on and then there was uh, conservation international and 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 Sanjay and their uh, one of their scientists and vice presidents uh, that was really interesting yeah, he was talking about the, the idea of green muting. That's something that Bob Langard, our editor-at-large and McDonald's sustainability legend, has talked about a lot. It's also something you've talked about a lot, that companies are walking a lot more than they're talking. Um, so Sanjan was asking, how can you talk more about your walk? Um, in essence, he said it's all about changing minds and hearts. People don't make decisions rationally. That's why we buy $200 sneakers that don't help us run any faster. Yeah. And he suggested that nonprofits like Conservation International, um, maybe they're better in hearts and minds issues than companies are, companies focusing on the bottom line. But he said nonprofits might be able to help big companies tell their stories um, for example, Conservation International is still producing more of these Nature is Speaking videos. They show really gorgeous scenes of nature narrated by big movie stars like Harrison Ford is a real scary ocean. who's <laughs> super ticked off. And <laughs> Lupita Nyong'o is a flower. Julia Roberts and Ed Norton Jr. and uh, Reese Witherspoon and, and, and lots of others. Yeah, they're you know, giving voice uh, to nature, and the the kicker at the end is says that um, uh, nature doesn't need people; people need nature. Uh, and, and it's about you know you know the ocean talking about you know I feed you, I you know I keep your climate uh, hospitable, I do lots of things, and you need me, you know, and I'll be fine without you, as uh, Harrison Ford says in in the video, something around this only Harrison Ford can do, and I won't. Really, well, I'll try to replicate it a little bit. He said, I covered the world once. I can do it again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. And Sanjan was saying the videos are meant to be in your face and stark without being preachy. So they really do show that there is something bigger out there than ourselves, but th there are different twists on the usual go green messages that you often hear in marketing. And we have a clip here of, uh, it's just the audio part of uh, one of those videos that we showed from Reese Witherspoon as nature and what that means to people. I am your refuge. I am the floor that supports you. The foundation that keeps you steady. The walls that give you shelter. The roof that protects you. I am your home. If you don't take care of me, I cannot take care of you. Uh, and you really got to see it. We'll link to it uh, on the website. It's it's visually quite stunning. In fact, we'll link to the whole uh, series, which was, by the way, put together 
uh, by Lee Clow, the uh, sort of one of the gurus of advertising who's famous for Apple's uh, notorious 1984 Super Bowl ad. So where's this going, Elsa? What's the future of storytelling? Well, obviously, coming off the Oscars, you have the big screen is um, a great way to tell a story, and Conservation International is doing that with its videos. You can watch on a big or a small screen, but what about virtual reality? Sanjan was talking about the potential for that to tell stories in new ways and to fully immerse yourself in a virtual environment and experience it differently. You can take the storytelling to a next step. And if you think about what ha what's going on in Barcelona right now uh, with, you know, sort of VR and the excitement that, you know, this, this amazing photo of Virtual you know, reality yeah, for Zuckerberg over, yeah. walking into the room with all these guys wearing these Samsung headsets. You know that immersing people in nature is a, is a place where we will go. So we're working on something very exciting with that. I can't tell you about it, but maybe at the next conference we can sort of preview some of this. It won't be long before VR is going to allow us to actually stand in our homes and see the water level rise. That'll be probably a shocker for a lot of people. He also talked a lot about big data and the role that um, software can play in helping us visualize information that might otherwise be left hidden. So tools can show and map for example, deforestation and other things. Uh, well, that's really interesting, and uh, more to come on that story. Uh, Elsa Wenzel, Managing Editor, thanks a lot. Thank you. At the top of the show, we mentioned that we had a special guest this week, Mike Milkey from the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, stopped by Green Biz HQ in downtown Oakland. And Joel, you had a chance to sit down and talk with him, right? Sure. Mike is uh, the uh, vice president, uh, senior vice president of environment and energy um, at the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, which is a membership group of about, I think, 275 or so uh, big companies, all the companies you'd expect from Silicon Valley, lots of smaller ones. And um, uh, you know, looking at a whole range of, of issues, but sustainability is, uh, you know, water and energy and governance and toxics, hazardous materials, all that is, a, is right up there and at the top of the list. And uh, uh, I sat down with Mike after the lunch he had with a number of our team members to just find out what's going on, uh, how Silicon Valley is thinking about technology and sustainability, particularly after the COP meeting in Paris. Folks that I deal with, it's Silicon Valley, it's a lot of these high-tech companies. I mean, they, you know, it's scientists and engineers, they get climate change. They've gotten it for a long time. Um, and a lot of them are really passionate about what they and their companies can do to address it. And they've been, as you know, Green Business does well, they've been doing that for a while. I don't expect a big change with regards to how these companies orient themselves in the world. What I expect is that COP did this, and that is provide more wind in the wings of the folks who are doing the hard work within these companies, right? It gives them a sense that the whole world now, for the first time, is really coming together to tackle this. And that all these success stories that we saw leading up to Paris really make a difference and are really helpful and hopeful. And so that's going to enable them to do, continue to do what they're doing. So give me an example of what that might enable post-Paris that they may not have been able to do before. 
Well, like I said, I don't know if it's going to enable them to do what they wouldn't have done previously, right? I mean, a lot of that depends on policy, right? And a lot of it depends on a lot of other market forces. Um, I think we're beginning to see on the other market forces, we're beginning to see the capital markets more and more appreciate that the, the energy system is changing, that clean energy is here to stay, that it's inevitable now, and that it's only a matter of time. So I think that's, that's certainly helpful in terms of larger forces at play. But I think when they're having these conversations internally within their companies, right, I think there are less people now that will be openly skeptical or will call into question things um, that are or are not most often happening around the world. So I think there's just that level. It's just the level now has gone from down here to up here. Right. So I think it makes it easier for them. So you spent a lot of time in Sacramento and, and some in, in Washington, D.C. as well, talking to policy people uh, about the enablers and removing the barriers. Has that conversation changed in the last few months? With regards to climate? In California, no. Uh, it's just more of a, a you know, uh, feeling good about what happened in Paris. But California's been doing this for so long. I think folks uh, very much within the administration get this. I think there's a lot of folks newly, um, you know, ensconced in Sacramento, new, new folks in the legislature who don't understand all the things that California has done and how it's been such a great success and now how solar is such a big employer. There's all these jobs all across the state, not just along the coast. It's on the Central Valley and the Inland Empire and other areas. Washington, D.C., it's a whole different can of worms, hmm. and you know what you know why that is. There's very powerful interest groups that are, are pushing hard against the, what's coming, the, the coming tidal wave, really. So that really hasn't changed much. So what's the one thing in California that you're hoping will happen from a policy perspective that would, if not change the game, at least be you know, create an inflection point? Um, I think it's the next generation of um, uh, technologies and having them all come together, right? So we're talking about solar on your rooftop, working together with storage down in your basement, working together with your home energy management system, and then having that all you know, optimally run and also at the same time, if you have a, a large enough system, power your electric vehicle outside. Like seeing all that stuff coming together, I think California's... Um, uniquely poised to take advantage of that. Uh, because what's, what's we, needed? I think we're going to need to see some more advancements in storage. We're going to have to see the cost come down a little bit more. We're going to have to see um, more examples of these systems you know, operating for a certain period of time and folks getting comfortable with that and understanding how that works. What are the different opportunities? What are the different um, technologies? at play. Um, but I think that's really close. And I think, you know, in California, we've done, you know, there's a big mandate now in the state with storage, which is going to do a lot. And the Tesla Gigafactory is coming online uh, pretty soon. So we're going to see a lot happening on storage. But I think there's, there's some possibility for future legislation in storage to drive further mandates, because that's, I think, a big piece as we go more and more into renewables to power the grid and the power of transportation is really we got we to gotta address storage. So I didn't hear a lot of policy uh, solutions in there, except possibly on storage later. It sounds like there's not, are you saying that there's not a lot needed? Oh, no, no, no. I think there's a lot coming on transportation with zero emission vehicles. I think there's a lot on um, grid resiliency and the smart grid still to come. I mean, you know, as we put, push more renewables on the grid, we've actually seen um, that that has actually enabled more resiliency within the grid. But 
as we're moving en you know, energy from where it's being created due to wind or sun, you know, where the sun's shining to other parts of the state, that's going to continue to be an issue. So we're going to see a lot going on with regards to that as well. Yeah. Let's talk really quickly about water. <laughs> sure. We could spend a lot of time on But what what's the, it's a very similar question, the one thing that needs to happen in California now, from that, that would, particularly from the business perspective, that would enable them to, to uh, become more resilient from a water use perspective? I gotta say, this one's pretty simple. It's just realizing that we live in a semi-arid climate and that lawns are not necessary. It's just really that simple. I mean, so much of the water that we use um, in the cities now is for stuff that we don't need. I mean, it's not like, it, it's not as nearly as important as taking a bath or drinking water or, uh, you know, water to boil, whatever you're making for dinner. Or just, growing for produce. Right. Yeah. But that's, that's different in the Central Valley, right? But I'm, I'm just saying on the coasts, right? I think there's a lot that we can do to, to zero scape and, and, and downsize and just get rid of all that, that water that's not being, not being uh, used really well. I think there's a lot of stuff that can happen on recycling and reuse. Um, folks don't always appreciate, and California, there's a, also an opportunity here from a policy standpoint to get that water energy nexus. So we really understand what are the trade-offs of um, reusing our water and how energy intensive is that. Um, it, obviously, it's a very precious commodity. So we want to we have as much of it readily available as possible um, on demand. Um, and I think also we have to understand in California that we're getting, because of climate, we're going to get into this even more of a feast or famine cycle, right? So it's either too much right away all at once or not enough over a prolonged period of time. So it's figuring out how do we... Uh, adjust to the new climate cycle, and then how do we store that water when when we when it comes down? How do we use it wisely uh, when it's there, prolong its use, and then how do we arm ourselves? I was just mentioning I was uh, just in Miami recently, and uh, there was projects all over the city where they're raising infrastructure because of you know what's happening along, along the coast and actually underground because it's limestone's very porous, so they're seeing uh, the salt water intruding mm. below ground too. Um, that's happening, you know, here in the Bay Area. I mean, that's a big issue. We're surrounded by water. So it's, you know, all the stuff that we have to worry about when it comes to sea level rise, more intense storms. So it's um, really understanding what that means and how do we prepare for that as well. Well, it doesn't sound like you'll be out of a job anytime soon. Um, thankfully, no. <laughs> Great. Uh, Mike Milkey, Silicon Valley Leadership Group. Uh, thanks again for stopping by. Always appreciate it. Thank you. One of the things we do at uh, events like Green Biz 16 are short little stand-up kind of TED Talk sort of things that we call One Great Idea. Um, really the opportunity for big thinkers and, and others to come in and talk about what they're looking at, what they're doing. We had a number of those last week at Green Biz 16, and one of them was about an environmental data analytics project called Earth Genome. Lauren, you wrote a story about it. Uh, what's going on here? Yeah, so Earth Genome is a nonprofit that was founded by an interesting mix of guys. Uh, you have Glenn Lowe, who's former Bain & Co., and he's been with uh, sustainability consulting groups, uh, as well as Steve McCormick, 
who is former Nature Conservancy, and Dan Hammer, who is actually a doctoral student that used to serve as a data scientist within the White House and at NASA. So what they're trying to do is really make sense of this whole natural capital space that's trying to add uh, sort of an economic incentive to conservation and taking care of ecosystems. Uh, The issue from their point of view is that while we have a lot of environmental data from groups like the EPA and NOAA and NASA, there's not a good way for companies to translate that into their operations. And so they've developed some tools around how to do that. And um, this isn't just theoretical. They're already working with companies like Dow and uh, PepsiCo. Yeah. So let's let Glenn take it away. Here's what he had to say about that. Environmental information, what I call big data for the environment, can transform how every decision on the planet is made. Unfortunately, today, it's like the internet without search. Companies have come to believe that big data, it's either not findable, not usable, or not relevant. Unfortunately, what's been the biggest problem is missing translation. People get fixated on the data, not on the insight that big data can generate. In particular, a translation toward financial value for any specific company. That's the key. So as a result, today, Value is less than the effort. It's too costly to get real value from big data for the environment. The key here is to find problems that, if solved, would create real value, not just for the environment, but for your organizations. So here are four themes that we are pushing on over the next several years. Now, thematically, a lot of these things cut across with water. Why water? Well, water is one of life's most essential ingredients. It's also one of the key inputs to nearly everything made on the planet. We started with a very specific problem statement, Texas. That's where our initial pilot is in. Texas has a very acute problem with water, multi-year droughts punctuated by floods that kill people. Now, so acute today that they're spending or considering spending hundreds of billions of dollars in water infrastructure investments. Now, I'll say that we are thrilled to have worked with Dow on this initial pilot. The Brazos River Basin is the home for the Freeport facility, their largest chemical plant in the world. And in particular, they've had great experience in working with green wetland projects, both at Sea Drift, Texas, and the other successful work with the Nature Conservancy at Freeport. Their question that they asked us was pretty simple, complex to answer, but simple. Can you find green solutions across the entire watershed? Because we know what happens upstream affects what we get downstream. So let me quickly explain what GIS, the Green Infrastructure Support Tool, is. Here, nature-based solutions refers to wetland restoration. Now, many of you probably know that wetlands are nature's versions of reservoirs. More water when you want it, less water when you don't. Now, to make this actually possible, we had to create an innovative combination of data, science, visualization, and end-user context, a specific decision to be answered. So we mashed up 40 geospatial data sets, interpreted with world-class science, including new science that had to be invented for this tool, an easy map-based user interface, anyone could use it, and an end-user context. And I would argue, most importantly, expressed in financial terms, the kinds of financial terms that any CFO would love. This tool allows Dow to see the other 99.99% of the water basin that's outside of their fence line. What you're going to see in a moment are green pixels. Those are the results of the data and science that I mentioned earlier. In particular, digital elevation model data down to 30 meter resolution. 
what, what this allows any user to do is ask the question, what would be the financial benefit and hydrological benefit of a wetland in that exact site? It also shows the site details, size, storage of water, the cost based on the USDA Wetland Reserve Program data set, and importantly, the financial value expressed in internal rate of return, payback period, ROI. We also imported population data set. Why? Because you need to know where are their people and where is their water. Now, it's important to highlight that this had to be easy for end users, decision context. What you're seeing is a sample output, compare sites side by side. It also does an exact comparison to gray alternatives within the state of Texas and the Texas water plan and allows you to compare the sites on a cumulative basis and an individual basis. The breakthrough is you can actually find solutions now. You can enable anyone to find the needle in a haystack. The few places where it makes sense to make an investment that's appropriate for the entire watershed, not just for Dow, but for everyone in the watershed. The Earth Genome is also just sort of one group trying to make sense of this whole space. Our friends at TrueCost are doing a lot in this realm, and there are lots of others sort of trying to take these things that we know are big sustainability risks like water scarcity and translate them into tools that businesses can actually use. So I'm sure this is something we'll be hearing a lot more about. Let's shift gears to the week ahead. Back with us now is managing editor Elsa Wenzel. What have we got in the hopper for next week, Elsa? Next week, it is International Women's Day, Tuesday, March 8th. What does that have to do with sustainability? Actually, everything. And you, Lauren, will explain why. Also, we have a story about Suzanne Apple, who is retiring from the World Wildlife Fund. She was senior vice president of private sector engagement there. Bob Langert writes about her, comparing her to both Abraham Lincoln and Katniss Everdeen, the Hunger Games heroine. So that's a fun piece. Barbara Grady is also writing about energy technologies hitting the mainstream that should be on your radar. Uh, so those are just three stories, and we have much, much more. Check it out. Yes, and if you're into live events, we've got a couple of those in the next few months as well. You can go to greenbiz.com and click the events tab at the top of the page where you will find information about Verge Hawaii, the Asia-Pacific Clean Energy Summit, where we'll be talking all things renewable energy as the island state moves towards its 100% renewable goal. And we'll also be back in Silicon Valley in September for Verge 2016. So check those out. 
Thanks, Elsa and Lauren. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can find the links to the organization's stories of videos, events, and other things that we've mentioned in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks, as always, to 350's producer, Soraya Melkonian. Uh, by the way, you can subscribe to GreenBiz 350 through a variety of channels if you're into that sort of thing. You go to iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts can be found. And you'll always find it every Friday morning on GreenBiz com or through our daily email newsletter called Green Buzz. Hope you're subscribed to that. Uh, as always, send us your feedback, your ideas, and your comments to 350 at greenbiz.com. For all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, have a great day.